Hello, students. Welcome to Detention. I am everyone's favorite co-host, the Caleb G. But tonight I am Professor Crunch, and that means it is my job to take care of you hooligans who have found yourselves stuck here after hours at the RPG Academy. To help me out, I have some voices you know and love, uh, a man who's become a staple on these detention programs, Mr. Scott. Howdy, all you kids out there on Radio Land. And our special guest this evening is a voice you know from the Sharkbone podcast, Christopher. My wife says I'm special. She's lying to you. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for coming on tonight, Christopher. I know this was kind of a last minute thing, but hey, we don't plan ahead here in detention. You know, detentions are one of those things that you don't expect to get. It just falls in your lap because you accidentally slapped a fellow student in front of a teacher. And yet it is a weekly program with established schedule for posting and established content. So Detention, the show that you never expect but happens every week on Tuesday. Well, it's, it's somehow random events can be predicted in aggregate, right? Some of us just keep mouthing off and end up right back here. Wasn't that, uh, wasn't that Ian Malcolm's thing in Jurassic Park with the water and chaos? Chaos theory? I don't know. Yes. Sure. Because if you put a drop of water on your hand, it will flow down one side. You put another drop, it will go a completely different way because something about um, hair follicles. Who cares? Jeff Goldblum being Jeff Goldblum. Right. Plus Done. movie science. Plus movie science, which has no bearing on reality. Actually, I think that's pseudo movie science. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it was stretching the realms of logic even for movies. All right, well, why don't we go ahead and jump in with extracurricular, catch up with what we've been doing in our real lives or whatever is happening outside of the academy. Uh, what have you guys been up to? Anything good? Um, depends on how depressing and dreary you want to make this cast. Well, with you being on here, Christopher, I expect you either to ramble the whole show or just be a bummer. So which one are we going to start with? I just got back from Chicago burying my grandmother. Whoa, bringing in the dark material. All right. So how was well, that? Well, it was nice seeing all the family that I haven't seen in a long time. But it was sucky because it's the last time I got to see my grandma. Yeah, that is never fun to deal with. That is a shame. But on the plus side, I'm moving in six weeks. Everybody likes moving. And you're moving to our neck of the woods, right? Right. I'll be moving to the great state of Ohio. Well, two of those words are correct. Well, you have to understand that I'm going to go off into that uh, rambly tangent you were afraid of. Oh, boy. But my boss's boss at work is from Ohio, and anytime anybody doesn't say it as the great state of Ohio, he will correct you. Well, he's just an idiot. He's the one who got me my job, so I would not call him an idiot. <laughs> I'm not you. I don't work for the guy. That's true. And six weeks, I won't work for me either, but he's still a pretty cool dude. Uh, well, Ohio is an okay place to live. You got to live somewhere. Yeah. And you guys are, uh, you're driving all the way up here, cross country, right? Yep. Literally across the country from Austin, Texas, which is pretty much the southern tip of the U.S., all the way up to Ohio, which is the heartland of america right that's the slogan that is the slogan but it's not in the middle right but it's 
it's very difficult to get much farther north without being in uh, Uper territory. You could have moved to Maine. Yeah, New York, Maine, anywhere up there is going to be further north. Alaska. Yeah. Ooh, Alaska's really far north. Yeah, but I've been to Alaska. What's it like? My my brother-in-law was stationed there in the Air Force Base. Um, well, I went in Christmas time, and it was literally freezing, like 40 degrees below zero. And then we went in the summer for 4th of July, and it was 80 degrees and sunny for, you know, 16 hours every day. Hooray! Endless light. That sounds miserable. Both versions, both versions of the state are just miserable. Right. It's it's extremes one way or the other. You can't just, you know, live in the continental U.S. and have it be dark and light in equal proportions. No, it has to be extreme one way or the other. I don't know if we have any listeners in Alaska. Hey, listeners, if you're in Alaska, tell us how miserable it is. Michael, care of the RPG Academy. Yep. Yep. Just what I was saying. Uh, well, Ohio will give you seasons. Thank God. <laughs> they're all miserable. Not as miserable right, but, as Alaska, but they're all horrible. I'm from Chicago, so I'm used to, you know, the, the two major seasons, construction and winter. Yes. Although, currently in Ohio, we have uh, blazing Sahara Desert in the fuck you sunshine. So, nice. welcome to that. God, it's been horrible. As As someone who lives on the internet, talking into a screen... In a room with blinds and a fan and curtains to dampen the noise, I don't like going outside right now. (laughs) So uh, what about you, Scott? What are you up to? I've been uh, seriously debating what games I want to run for a catacon. Oh, you beat me to the punch of dropping a catacon. Well done, sir. Nice plug. Well done. It's It's almost like you're... Somewhat not employed by the people who are organizing it. It's it's almost like I want to plug everyone else's games so that uh, no one comes and realizes how uh, I started planning early, but I didn't actually get any real planning done until probably the week or night before, and then I crabbed some crap together and showed up and was a panic, and, and the game was a nightmare, I'm sure. So you are starting early this year? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I believe in starting panicking early. I, I don't believe in starting getting work done early, but uh, we'll see. So you're thinking about it is what we're saying. Yep, I'm, I'm pre-panicking, you know, right? It's... Well, if you like, I can uh, loan you a book of mine, Eureka, um, 501 uh, plots. So you just, at the day of, you just open up to a random page and it's all written down what you need Ooh, to do. I, uh, I support that. I've actually been um, in my home game right now. I've been trying to decide, you know, I I can uh, improvise sessions and I can plan sessions, um, but yet at the table, uh, sometimes they're amazing successes and sometimes they fall flat. And I've been trying to work out what I've I've been trying to go back to the basics and understand, again, the elements of basic plot and story and narrative and understand why some are more exciting than others. Why was everyone bored to death about the vampire? But then when it came to shopping for furniture, whoa, get out. Well, if the uh, ghost of Jim McClure could join us on this show, I'm sure he would launch onto a ramble of the eight types of fun. Is it eight? I don't know. I I always went with D6 plus three, but whatever. (laughs) Maybe we need to have a uh, a seance here and summon up 
the ghost of Jim to answer this question. Um, but no, it's really interesting that you're looking at things from more of a story structure standpoint and not so much a what kind of game and mechanics am I putting together standpoint. I, I think it's really interesting that it's an evolution of how we approach gaming. I myself am not 100% there yet. I'm, I'm trying to incorporate a little bit more of what makes a story good and interesting in my preparation. But a lot of times I am much more focused on the big, punchy, flashy scenes uh, and, and how to just make things interesting and exciting and hoping the story follows along. Uh, but listening to uh, pretty much everyone over on OneShot talk about story structure and mechanics and how to generate a quality plot uh, and put that first and foremost uh, when you're doing a game and running a game. That's I, I'm in that pre-panic stage where I say, you know, I should be doing this. I should be learning this. Eh, bar fight. Combat. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. Combat Let's three. see if a story falls out of this. Yeah, the, the question I've been asking myself lately is, is uh, you know, that that maybe was it was an okay scene, it was a good scene, it was a bad scene, it was a good fight, it was a bad fight. But would it have belonged in the movie? Right? Like, like if, mm. if if this had been an arc, would that have ended up on the cutting room floor? What's did that service the plot? Did that advance the narrative in any meaningful way? Did we learn things about the characters during that encounter? Did we like get? Uh, uh, an evolution of the action did we did we raise something up did we reveal something like no we just fought zombies and, and the purpose of the zombies was just to uh, slow the players down then uh, you know cut it out I don't know it's a very good way of putting it I'm, I'm gonna have to steal that from my home games and now we see the fault in my logic because the movies I like to watch are just the big flashy action scenes and the story just follows along to uh, provide some weak sense of cohesion. So you like to play games that are the Matrix Reloaded? <laughs> now that's just insulting, Christopher. That's a low blow, sir. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, would not say that that had a plot at all. I mean, that's that's a bold. Claim. It was a bunch of flashy fight scenes strung together by duct tape and prayer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, you're you're not quite wrong. <laughs> I don't know. I, I really like big, flashy, exciting games. You know, I, I approach gaming as a form of escapism. I want to get away. I want to just have the big, dramatic, epic moments. And what appeals to me more right now is the, the big, flashy, cheesy, special effects-driven drivel. Hmm. Maybe one day I'll grow up and, and want a story. Well, there's nothing wrong with having big, flashy scenes in all of your games. Because, I mean, that's what, you know, for example, The Avengers was. There was lots of exciting, big, flashy scenes, but it had a really good plot line behind it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you say, plot elements can be very simple, right? And and you can string simple ones together to make a good, interesting, involving narrative, right? You, you, not everything has to be waiting for Godot. I think it's okay. Yeah, that's that's never going to happen at my gaming table. I'll just apologize right now to everyone. On behalf of everyone, we will think about accepting your apology. That's fair. Tell you what, if you want to talk about this, come to a catacon this November 11th, 12th, and 13th in Dayton, Ohio. 
You can tell me how shitty I am right to my face. You got a date in Dayton, Ohio. But I'm bumped. Yeah. That'll be in my backyard. Well, more like four hours away. Yeah, but better four hours than 16. I wonder if Uber will take me there. I think Uber's a thing in Ohio. I think we're that socially advanced. You know, it's not a thing here in Austin. Uh, and uh, for me here, man, I really haven't had time to do that much. I've been working a lot lately. Uh, weather's been rough. Construction's been rough. I've been spending a lot of time driving. God, I- I've been thinking about a catacon, of course. I-, I am definitely starting to plan some games. I have a game that I planned for last year and never got to run. So I am revamping it for this year, and I am much more pleased with the results at this point. Uh, I am not at liberty to discuss its content, but I will share that it takes inspiration from a beloved childhood cartoon and uh, adds a very interesting dynamic of those big flashy scene moments that I tend to favor. Thundar the Barbarian. No. Oh, Voltron Defender of the Universe. Mm. A Voltron game would actually be really fun. How about a mashup of both original Thundercats cartoons? The one about the the, the fighter jets that patrol the city and the one about the lion monsters that, that uh, have, you know, the cave. What fighter jets that patrol the city? I didn't just make that up, did I? Google's my friend. Thunderbirds. Thunderbirds? Yes. Thunderbirds are oh, go! Yeah. That was that was the one with the marionettes. No, yes. Yes, no then that's not what I'm thinking of. Are you thinking mask? Are are you thinking of the cartoon by the same people that did Thundercats, where they were in space and they were half birds? Uh, oh, I'm thinking of SWAT cats. SWAT cats. SWAT cats. Oh, the two the two cats with the fighter jet and the, and they drop motorcycles out of yes! it. Yes, it was yeah. so toyable. And they had attitude. Oh. I loved that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had the um, they had gauntlets, like Batman style gauntlets, with grappling hooks and shit in them. Yeah, and they 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 worked in a junkyard. And when something yep. when something some shenanigans would go down, they'd hit the button and and it would fall, and the junk would fall down, and the jet would and it'd be a VTOL. Mm-hmm. Oh, what else came from that time? Biker mice from Mars. How about that? Whoa. Um, Hong Kong Fooey. We want to go that, a little that, obscure. Uh, very Hanna Barbera. Very yes. Hanna Barbera. Yep. And uh, a little late, honestly, uh, to be that racist. Just a titch. <laughs> there was the uh, old school TMNT cartoon. A classic. Always good. Yep. Always good. Uh, we're going to throw Robotech in there. Good old fashioned Robotech, Gundam Wing. Which. Robotech is actually available uh, Amazon Prime streaming. Oh. Yes, I am super excited. I've gone through 33 episodes in the past two weeks. Although they they haven't made an abridged version, have they? No. Why would you want that? That's just DBZ, I think. Because all anime is better abridged. I I want a miniseries. I mean, the anime series that are already miniseries are cool, but like 84 episodes, and then they like just make a new one, and they go all the way back to the original like plot and start all over. I don't know. Oh, there's something else I've been doing. Um, I've been binging Limitless. On Netflix. Doesn't it really make you want to take Adderall? <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. 
make you a super mm-hmm. genius. I knew the show was on CBS, and I wasn't able to watch it since I don't have actual television. I just have streaming services. Good for you. And CBS is not on Hulu. Shout out, Bad for shout out to CBS. Get on the ball, guys. And I, I knew the show existed. I knew it was a good show, but I never picked it up. And then randomly, it was in the Netflix recently added. And I said, hey, let's give this a shot. And now I'm 14 episodes deep, and I love every second of it. Oh, I was going to say, it it popped up on the uh, recommended for you list on Netflix, but since it's based on the movie and I haven't seen the movie, I figured I should see the movie first. Nope. Nope. Doesn't matter. Oh, sweet. Uh, Because it gives you the summary of the important bits of the movie in that the character from the movie took the drug and is part of the show, sort of. And end of okay. connection to the movie. The mo- I never right. saw the movie either. Uh, as I understand it, the movie was supposed to be kind of a gritty, political, how-do-you-deal-with-yourself kind of piece, drama. That's that's putting a lot on that movie. It was, it was very much like a Saturday afternoon and I've got nothing else going on film. It was not like a treatise on something, something. <laughs> okay. Was it trying to be better than it was? Um, I, I, It was okay. It was great for a Saturday yeah. afternoon. All right. The the TV show, though, takes it, throws that shit out the window. It is a procedural cop drama in the vein of all procedural dramas where one person who's not a cop is the linchpin to everything the cops are doing. Okay. But the show absolutely embraces the stupidity of those tropes and does not try to hide it. So it's kind of like what um, SG-1 did to the Stargate franchise. Yes. It it says, hey, we're going to embrace the fact that we're just a shitty procedural drama. We've got this dude who thinks really good, even though that doesn't make any sense within the concept of what this drug is supposed to do. Because the drug is supposed to give you perfect recall, but instead this guy can like read through a room full of files in an hour well, it, 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 it made you, you know, optimally efficient, right? You were the completely rational human being where you could recall every bit of information you've ever been presented. You could apply it all with, with 100%, you know, efficiency and accuracy, right? And uh, you, you had total control and will over your choices, right? You, you, you didn't fall into, like, terrible habits. It was ridiculous. Which does happen. That is represented in the show. But they just gloss over the fact that he also somehow has super speed at reading and things like that. All right. But the character is a total goofball. He's just an idiot, except when he's on the drug. And then he's just a smart idiot, and he's more of an asshole. But it's hilarious. And the show absolutely embraces his little tangents and gives them reality. So when he breaks off and starts imagining how things go, everyone on the show is basically playing along. It absolutely breaks the fourth wall, and it does it so perfectly. I just watched, uh, I said this on Twitter the other day, episode 13, he has a little bit of a mental breakdown because they're dealing with a really grisly murder. So he goes to his subconscious, talks to a uh, dinosaur costume wearing TV host from his childhood, and they agree to replace all the scary words with friendly words. And then for the entire show, 
when anyone in the cast, even if this dude is not in the room or not in the scene, when they are using these terms, they use his terms. Okay. So when they talk about a serial killer, he replaced killer with hugs. So for the entire show, all the FBI are talking about a serial hugger who hugged all these women. And it's totally <laughs> serious. It's totally serious. Ah, oh, I love it so much. Oh, it's wow. oh. Okay, I, I think you sold me with a serial hugger. Oh my god. It's I wish it wasn't 13 episodes deep because that episode clinches the series. I'll have to look into yeah, it then. Yeah. Unfortunately, on top of using this magical miracle drug, he uses a lot of other drugs too, which I don't agree with because the show is basically saying, hey, this super smart dude uses a bunch of recreational drugs and it's A-OK. But the cops are all drunks. So, you know, neither here nor there. Don't do drugs, kid. Kids. Uh, yeah, don't do drugs and drink responsibly or just don't drink. Winners don't use drugs. Uh, what else did the 90s teach us? Knowledge is power. Uh, um, not no, knowing is half the battle. Knowing is half the battle. Well, that was the eighties, but that that wasn't the nineties. That was the eighties. That's okay. Close. Important enough. lessons brought to us by television. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Can't fight city hall. Six one half dozen together. Alrighty. So uh, enough dilly dallying around here with extracurricular. Why don't we move on to our next segment? Dead campaigns. Here we bring up an old campaign that ended prematurely, both to talk about why it ended, to help you avoid those pitfalls. And share some fun ideas that maybe give you some inspiration for your home games. Uh, Christopher, you are the special guest tonight. Do you have a dead campaign you would like to talk about? Oh, there's so many. Um, but let's go back back in time to the 90s. Way back machine, Mr. Peabody. Yep. Way back machine, 1997. I believe it was back when I was still in middle school. It was a Star Wars D6 game, and I was the GM because, you know, most people don't like GMing, so I was the, uh, it, me and Josh were the de facto GMs, but he was playing this time. So anyway, long story short, um, Too late. it took, yeah, exactly. It took about two hours to finally get anywhere with the campaign. And it literally died before session one was over mm. with because one of the players thought it would be great to play a an arms merchant. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be this arms merchant. I'm going to supply everyone with guns. It's going to be great. I was like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds like an awesome character type. You know, you are the dude with the connections who gets the guns that you shouldn't have. He didn't want to leave his shop. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't an arms merchant he was a shopkeeper <laughs> and it took forever in game for the other characters to convince his character to go on an adventure because even when we tried to talk to him out of game be like dude we, we want to get going let's get going he's like but that's not what my character would do i'm like fine a platoon of stormtroopers comes in and blows the fuck out of your shop ah, love it Oh, I hate the Empire. Let's destroy them. Now we can get moving. <laughs> the Star Wars equivalent of ninjas show up is a platoon of stormtroopers shows up and blows shit up. That is a flashing GM sign if I ever saw one. We were in middle school, so we didn't know any better at the time, but 
seriously, players out there, go with the group and make a character that would make sense to be with the group. Because after it took two to three hours of our six-hour session, because, you know, we were in middle school. It was a weekend. We didn't have anything else to do. We were all sitting around a pool table drinking lots and lots of soda. I'm sorry. We were we were in Chicago at the time, so we were drinking pop. We didn't know any better. We didn't know about the social contract or our session zero. We were just, yeah, let's play. But it just took so long to get momentum that it just died on the table. So do you think... If you had gotten him to participate or buy into the adventure side of the game uh, a little bit earlier, the game would have continued, or it was just fated to end because it was one of those kid games where you guys just don't know what you're doing and you're wasting an afternoon. If we could have gotten him on board, you know, within the first half hour or even an hour, it would have gone on for at least two or three more sessions. Because back then we didn't actually play campaigns. We just, um, we did miniseries. You know, we would do three or four, maybe six on the outside sessions of one story arc. And then, you know, we'd switch games, switch GMs. So you got, you guys were jumping frequently from game to game just to do things in the afternoon and, and keep trying different things. Right. So it's not like you were trying to have a campaign that lasted for a couple years but you wanted more than one game out of Star Wars. Yeah, I was going for three or four maybe, but definitely more than one, and it just didn't happen. Okay, so how about this? Let's let's propose a theory here, and, and we'll hash it out. Let's say uh, we are setting up a game, and we are talking to our players responsibly. We're making sure everyone is engaged in the story. That uh, session zero is all about everyone sharing their story ideas. We're having a nice social contract established of the game we're going to play. And one player says, you know what? I think it'd be really fun to play a shopkeep. How does that tie in with the rest of the group? Okay, so the, the what we're explaining here, or what we're going to explore, I should say, is, is how do we handle this situation? In my opinion, as a GM, group cohesion is number one priority. If your character doesn't mesh with the other characters, the only reason your character is there is because you as a player are there. But if your characters were real people, they would have killed him and left his body for the Rancors. Okay, so let's let's deepen this theory here. Let's say every other player comes up with a, a shared story. They were all they all grew up in this city. Uh, some of them were street urchins. Some of them were from wealthy merchants and the aristocracy. Whatever. Everyone has a perfectly logical story reason for being in this city. And let's also say that via whatever uh, constraints of the story we can come up with, they all knew a merchant. And maybe the merchant had some connections on the trade routes, and he was one of those uh, very knowledgeable merchants where he knew everybody. He was kind of a fixer, if we want to use the Shadowrun term. Uh, it's a good term. And all of these other players say, hey, yeah, I know this guy. Oh, yeah, I knew that guy, too. I got this item from him. Oh, yeah, my parents knew that guy and blah, blah, blah. Like they work this NPC into everyone's story. And so the mm -hmm. player we're talking about says, well, hey, what if I play that NPC? What if I play that character? So we all I'm the person everyone shares these story elements with. 
Yeah, the central spoke of the hub. Exactly. That would work great with the understanding that 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 character would have a reason to adventure. Because most of the problem archetypes that I've encountered are more along the lines of the character has no reason to go adventuring. You know, for example, the, you know, the shopkeep who doesn't want to leave a shop. The druid who is super invested in this one specific grove when the rest of the adventure takes place in cities and in dungeons and, you know, five feet from his grove up, I have no reason to leave. So I'm not going any farther. The um, administrator who is super into whatever branch of the government they're in, they won't leave on a galaxy spanning game like Star Wars. They won't leave their one planet because they are a noble or a senator on the planet. So they have no reason to go elsewhere or if it's like a hunter game or something more modern, they are a clerk at the lo- local uh, DMV. They have no reason to leave. Well, why did you make a character that has no want for adventuring? You are an adventurer. Or or want for a different style of adventurer, yeah. Uh, I, I will give um, my, my two bits of, of learned lore of shared knowledge on, on this and uh, for the listeners at home. And the first is I've, I've learned to um, try and include that when I when I made make my offer and and ask people for backgrounds I'll say you know we're we're you've all uh, we're, we're starting out with with this militia that's been formed and so create any kind of character you want and also tell me why you've joined the militia everyone's joined that that's the ticket of entry right and you're, you've all joined uh, probably low to mid levels so we're all gonna be order long for a while or um, you know, if 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 you you're, you're all uh, angry at at the BBEG and and you guys fill out a reason why you you need vengeance on this big bad evil uh, character, or uh, you've all joined the City Watch, you can come up with whatever background you want, but you are the type of character who will join the City Watch and fulfill City Watch like duties. And if we do have some party infighting where some of you are corrupt and some of you are not, as long as it uh, isn't poisonous, right, that'll be okay. And then the the other thing that I've I've learned is is if these things come up later, right? If if a character develops, you know, uh, like gets married or has shell shock or um, achieves their major plot like personal objective, and now they have no more reason to move along, um, I've seen a lot of parties dissolve while everyone's metagaming and trying to limp this player along. You know, just just have the yes. bus leave. You know, if if they don't want to get on it, the bus can leave. And uh, you know, there was a great anecdote I, I heard about a story. That, um, you know, ha- have the bus leave and, and, and the player can decide if, if they want to uh, keep showing up and, and play their character as loosely related, right? Or if they want to um, play a new character, right? You can roll up a new one, uh, engage with the uh, adventure. The, the, there was a great story, I, anecdote I heard about where um, one of the characters, uh, the, it was a really long, long ongoing game. And one of the players had found out who the the big bad villain was. It turned out it was one of their allies all along. And uh, so the villain had them imprisoned. And the player kept showing up for months. And and they'd go around in every round of action, right? What are you doing? Oh, I'm staring at the brick wall and I'm envisioning what's going to happen to this guy when I finally get him. And a few months later, they finally broke him out of prison. Like, that's commitment. So, um, you know, if, 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 if your player is really committed to this archetype that does not work with the action... That's okay. You can let them sit there and commit to it, and they can still join in the jokes. And if they want to sit there in prison and play that out, then more power to them. And yeah, but 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 don't hold up the bus for that one player. That would be my advice. Now you could also let that player swap characters. That's absolutely an easy solution. yeah. Roll up a new one that, that fits, and then when we're back in the glade, you can play the druid. 
Yeah, yeah. If they want to be that shopkeep because they want to be that central spoke of the story and they want to maintain all these connections in town, all right, well, maybe your assistant travels with the group. Does your guy uh, keep track of, of the items and weapons you've loaned out? Are, are you... Are you sending the bureaucrat along with the party to monitor their use of spell components? Oh, jeez. It's like it's like Mr. <laughs> Wolsey in later episodes of SG-1 and SGA. Right. Does does the, uh, the armory uh, attendant travel with the party and dispense arrows and crossbow bolts as needed with uh, paperwork signed in triplicate? He complains fruitlessly whenever they're misused or overused. Or underused. Don't use an arrow to get the rope on the the, the portcullis. That's ridiculous. Every time the player uh, misses an attack, you just hear in the background, How dare you? Do you know how expensive that arrow is? Go pick that up. <laughs> Got a 50% chance of recovering any expen- any spent ammunition. So hopefully it didn't break. <laughs> but jokes aside, uh, yeah, if your player wants to take a role that might not lend itself to the adventure, maybe get creative. Let them have multiple characters. Let them come back to it. But really, I think the bottom line is get everyone on board. Like you said, Scott, g- give them that buy-in with the game. All right, make up your own characters and give me a reason why you are all X in the militia, on the boat, on an adventure, in the middle of the desert, in the planar dimension of fire, whatever. Mm-hmm. Somewhere or with a shared goal. Yeah. Although that being said, part of me thinks it would be really interesting to try to play a game in a city where you are all merchants. And part of the game is actually your daily upkeep of your store. Kind of like a, a neighborhood watch, maybe? Or a, a, a guild. Yeah. Right? You, you're you all from the same guild. You're trying to hack out other guilds. So you have to maintain the shop by day and engage in skullduggery and sabotage at night. That actually sounds awesome. Now, again, you, you've got the buy-in, though, of why you do more than simply being a shopkeep. So yep. you're already incorporating that. However, we are requiring that the first part of it is important too. Mm-hmm. One of the the interesting things when we're debating role-playing games is, okay, well, you're an adventurer. You're just a murder hobo. You're just wandering around doing things. Where's the reality in that? Where's your day-to-day life? So if we incorporate that the day-to-day life is actually important, so we establish a city, maybe you need to actually turn a profit every month. Like maybe we figure out some kind of chart or table or gameplay mechanic to represent profit and loss. Well, um, doesn't uh, 5e have something like that already for the, the downtime activities? Yeah, they, they do have some rules for generating wealth and things. I remember that the quickest way to a high standard of living was just playing a bard or having a perform proficiency. Right, right. And then you uh, automatically get all this wonderful income. Unlike like making furniture, which is a much more you know, hardship-based, like, die-based. Yeah. Are you going to make money this month? And or? if you take into account the um, necessity for hirelings, because obviously with you being part of a merchant's guild, you, you're you not just in a hole-in-the-wall shop. You have other shops. You have other employees. You have political reach. You have all this uh, money going out. So you're hoping at the end of the day when you make that that one fateful d20 roll you're hoping for a 17 because anything less and you're losing money 
So basically, we're defining bureaucracy the game. And and maybe there's also some spy work and murder in the evening. Let's call it skullduggery instead of bureaucracy. Because obviously <laughs> part of it is that you're going to bribe officials in order to look the other way, which would give you advantage on the check. But... Remember, you were behind on your payment last month to um, the Thieves Guild for protection, which would give you disadvantage on the check. But you do have, you know, a nest egg that you've been sitting on for a while that you can blow to automatically succeed or something. So there are, there are a lot of little uh, widgets and things within the game that can be leveraged to make it awesome. Yeah, and then you just have a ledger as a character sheet. You're good to go. You know, I have an accounting degree, so I totally could do that. Are we sure this game doesn't exist? It feels like this game should exist already. Everybody plays it every April. Well, on that note, let's go ahead and put dead campaigns to bed and move on to class review. Uh, So in the last four episodes, we have gone through the uh, four kind of core classes, what you think of in that very stereotypical D&D party, fighter, rogue, wizard, and cleric. Uh, now we're going to keep expanding. We're going to go through some of the other classes in the handbook, and I have decided to start with a personal favorite class of mine, the warlock. Bum, bum, bum. Ah, the warlock. Now, I love the warlock. He loves class. the lock. I love the lock. Gotta love the lock. Gotta love the lock. Uh, that's going to go on a t-shirt. Uh, uh, my first experience with the Warlock class as presented in Dungeons & Dragons was in the 3.5 era. Uh, it came to us in the complete arcane, and it was just a fun class. It was so simple and straightforward. As I've said many times on this and other shows... A lot of times my decisions in character generation is how lazy I am. And a warlock class is very lazy friendly. Yes. Because you basically do one thing and you do it really well. Eldritch Blast. Eldritch Blast. Eldritch Blast. Every damn turn. It's it's, it's nice that the character generation matches how most people play at the table. Right. right? <laughs> you, you, you know, everyone gets really sick of, of, of the wizard looking through his encyclopedia, you know, a magicka every for every encounter right like through this list of 150 scrolls that could be pulled out at any time but uh i I feel like most people you you get two spells that work together right you get grease and fire you get um you know sleep and more sleep something great right and uh then then you just beat that dead horse you you just keep hitting that money pinata and and that that's exactly what the warlock's good at web and fireball yeah the the warlock says hey you want to do magic yes of course you do do you want to just do damage yes of course you do do you want to be the ranged magical equivalent of a fighter? Yes, of course you do. <laughs> do you want spells that self-synergize because they make you worse at making a save and they cost a save and so you can cast it twice in the same character for added benefit? Of course you of do. Of course you do. And do you randomly want to climb walls at will or fly at will? Or, or... have glowing black eyes? Yeah. And the best dark vision in the entire book? Of course. Of course you do. That The answer is always, of course you do. D- do you want to sell your spirit to a dark god from an unholy and indecipherable dimension? Duh. Of course you do. Of course you do. Now, here's the really interesting thing. So back in the Complete Arcane 3.5, the alignment restrictions was either evil or chaotic. 
because sane, lawful people don't sell their souls to demons of other dimensions. Right. And the flavor text said, at some point, you made a deal with something. Maybe it was you, maybe it was someone in your family. Who knows what you made that deal with, and who knows what the specifics of that deal was. But somewhere, a deal was signed, and that's why you do what you do. And the iconic artwork of a warlock in 3.5 was the cheesy, uh, snide, whipply dude with the horrible mustache wearing armor that was pretty much demonic. So they set up the picture in your head that you made a deal with a devil somewhere, even though the flavor let you do kind of whatever you wanted. And I loved that aspect of it because they didn't really restrict you to anything. They said, hey, make the story work, do whatever you want, and just have fun with the class. That was that was what's really cool about 3.5. They gave you a lot of tips and pointers in the flavor, but they didn't really restrict you to a lot of things. Right. And I loved the Warlock class as a multi-class feature. Uh, some of my favorite characters were a Warlock fighter and a Warlock rogue. Oh. You, you guys brought up Naruto, and Naruto is the classic example of a Warlock rogue, right? Yeah. He's got a couple levels in sneakery, and then he has a deal with the demon. Exactly. Well, technically his parents made the deal with the the Nine-Tailed Fox spirit, if I recall. That's okay. Which, which justifies why... Uh, you know, in 5th edition, there's no alignment restrictions, right? right? Just alignment restrictions on your parents. Uh, so that was, that was 3-5. It was just have a lot of fun, blow stuff up. And one of the um, mechanical benefits and one of the mechanical things that the 3-5 Warlock brought to the table was the idea of at-will spells or spells that don't take up spell slots. Because in 3-5, yep. your cantrips were level 0 spells and you had 0 level spell slots. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eldritch Blast was a spell-like ability, and so it kind of opened mm-hmm. the door for what 5th edition calls cantrips, what 4th edition had as at-will abilities. And what 3rd edition just had as huge magic item abuse before yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> and since, uh, since Eldritch Blast was a spell-like ability, if you were feeling really frisky, you could dig into all the monstrous feats that boosted spell-like, spell-like abilities. abilities, not spells, yep. and play around with your race to just min-max the shit out of that Eldritch Blast. Yes, and it was scarily effective if done right. Exactly. And then we went into 4th edition. 4th uh, edition kind of evened the playing field and gave everyone a lot of very similar abilities. Mm-hmm. The Warlock stayed pretty much the same in theme. Sit there and blast. You arranged artillery. Exactly. But that's where we started getting the pact concept. Right. And it gave you three specific choices of what you exactly made that deal with and which one you chose provided mechanical benefits not just flavor text right and everyone always chose the fey because you got misty step as an encounter power exactly uh because then you could just teleport pretty much at will it it was insanely ridiculous like why would you do anything else because hello teleportation is like the most useful thing if you're artillery because teleporting did not provoke opportunity attacks and here's what's also very interesting Uh, One of the core abilities of Warlock in 4th edition was the curse. So you could pick an opponent, lay on that curse, and it would give you multiple benefits, but specifically damage benefits. 
and depending on your pact, would give you a boon when your cursed target died. And that also brings over a little bit of the Hexblade concept from 3.5, which was actually part from the uh, Complete Martial book, something like that, where basically you could curse an opponent, although with the Hexblade, you were just laying penalties on them. So neg two to saves, neg two to attack, that kind of thing. Uh, but it carried forward that idea a little bit. That martial handbook was amazing. It gave all martial classes the uh, complexity of the wizard. Hey, exactly. everyone hates their lives. You mean Book of Nine Swords. <laughs> oh yeah, that's what I was looking at. Yeah, yeah. Book of Nine Swords was you now cast magic with your sword. Yeah. Well, deal with it. Book of Nine Swords was, hey, we think this is how 4th edition is going to work. Tell us if you like it. And unfortunately, the answer was yes. Actually, the answer was no, it's too complex. We don't want to all play wizards. It still carried over a lot of themes, though, yeah, before. Yeah, totally did. The style was very different. The mechanics changed. I was one of the eight people alongside Jim McClure who actually enjoyed 4th edition. Hey, hey, we all like 4th edition. We were we were on here with Quinn last week. We all agree that we still love 4th edition. I haven't listened to that episode yet. Well, that's your fault. And my contract with the RPG Academy forbids me from expressing my opinions on 4th edition, so I'll just sit here. <laughs> it's not that your contract forbids you from expressing your opinions. It forbids you from telling things that are outright lies. Yes, as defined by the RPG Academy. So Because you're in detention. <laughs> Although you could just say that you got into detention by willingly breaking that contract. Ooh. Yes, yes. Uh, basically, I uh, took my Warlock pack with the RPG Academy and, uh, yeah, broke it. There you go. Pro tip, don't break your pact as a Warlock. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, here, GM, please screw with me. And then we got to 5th edition. So 5th edition carries over a lot of the 4th edition style of the Warlock. It, it maintains the pact benefits, so you have a mechanical impact of the choices you have made but in my opinion the fifth edition warlock is a very pale comparison to other versions of the class why is that because it's harder to min max because fifth edition has so few books out these days on one hand yes but on the other hand let's just take the best part about being the warlock eldritch blast mm -hmm. a lot of damage easy roll right yeah in fifth edition terms that is a cantrip mm -hmm. anyone who has a cantrip that cantrip scales right so pretty much anyone with arcane powers has a the free cantrip ability they're going to be slinging very similar attacks to the warlock right so that ability isn't special anymore but it is though because eldritch blast is an accurate scaler as opposed to a hard-hitting scaler because with, um, say, Fire Blast, the wizard gets, it's D10 plus 1D10 per time it scales. With Eldritch Blast, it's 1D10 plus an additional attack each time it scales. So with the wizard, you could be throwing a 5D10 Fire Blast, but if you fail that one attack roll, it's doing zero damage. Whereas with uh, Warlock, you're rolling five attack rolls doing D10 each. Which averages out the same, but it slows your game down a lot more, so everyone likes it. It averages out the same, but it also gives you more chances for the critical spike damage, because you're, the more d20s you roll, the more likely you are to make a crit. And then also, with the appropriate invocations, it is just fucking nasty. 
because you're doing, you know, you get the agonizing invocation, you're doing D10 plus charisma mod per attack, which is on par with the fighter who's doing three attacks at, you know, long sword plus, you know, the two-handed long sword plus strength each attack. Well, you're doing comparative damage to the melee classes with your cantrip, whereas um, cleric, wizard, uh, bard, any other class with cantrips, since you don't add that ability modifier, it doesn't scale as well as those that do get an ability modifier. So the Warlock has a more accurate DPS, or DPR rather, as opposed to others which are more swingy, and you also have a higher likelihood for the spike damage of getting that crit. But the point I was getting at was if we look back to the 3-5, you had a, a, a relatively high damage output, and it was a relatively easier ability because it was a ranged touch attack as opposed to uh, a spell that would require a save or a standard attack roll. That was something that always appealed to me. Plus, with all the invocations, you could really modify it to have a crazy range, mm-hmm. crazy add-on abilities, whatever you wanted. It, it just feels more easily accessible to me. It, it feels more, right off the bat, this is cooler. With 5th edition, as you explained, Christopher, it gets cooler. Right. And it only looks cool when you really compare it in crazy amount of detail to everything else that's happening. Yeah. Right off the bat, I, I just don't think it carries that same impressive factor to me. Right. And one of the, I think that's a byproduct of 5th edition as a whole, because the idea was that the iconic abilities of each class would come later to prevent doing the one level dip in everything and getting all the cool shit front-loaded. Right. And and of course, that was always tempered a little bit by uh, multi-classing penalties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were always ways around that. Yeah. Um, and, and here's my biggest issue with, with the Warlock here in 5th edition. It's really complicated. The, the spell abilities you get, because you, you get the invocations, but you also have spell slots and a very small list of spells that you can cast how those spell slots function is i don't want to say counterintuitive but it's not easy to master because there's a weird progression Mm -hmm. of how you get spells what level they are how your spell slots increase versus well the spell slots are just spell slots but it uh the slot level and how certain spells scale up but other ones don't and you can't take another version of a spell until you have a different one. It's it's not easy and fun, is what I'm saying here. I think that the Warlock, as written, is easier for those who haven't played D&D before because they don't have that this-is-how-spell-slots-work mentality going on. They're like, oh, this makes total sense. At level 4, I have two second-level spell slots. How hard is that? It's not. It's really simple. But for those who are like, okay, this is how many first level slots, how many second level slots I have. For those of us with the legacy knowledge, it does get a little bit more like, why is this different? But it's it's also a little bit more difficult because you don't always get different levels of the spells. You have a higher level spell slot and you have to monitor lower level spells that potentially scale up right. with that higher level slot. Yeah. In my opinion, if you had no knowledge of Dungeons and Dragons 
and you read the fifth edition warlock class, it would be very confusing. I would like to throw this out to the RPG Academy listener base. If D&D 5e is your first D&D, what's your take on the Warlock? Because I've been playing D&D since, you know, for over half of my life. So I really have no way of knowing what the actual reaction is because I have all that legacy knowledge of, you know, four and a half different editions prior to fall back on. And plus the invocations aren't as punchy and fun the the three five invocations you got a bunch of them that was the only really kind of confusing part of the class monitoring if you had least or or greater invocations because there were four different levels and you had to kind of monitor which ones you had at which level but they just did things you have spider climb at will yeah cast darkness at will you always have a plus six to bluff and and charisma based skills you know it was just stuff you could do right and i think what they tried to do with fifth edition was swap that out with giving you spell slots to give you a little bit more tricks in your toolbox but you're right with with the way they did it it does add more complexity because you have invocations and spell slots instead of just worrying about how many invocations can i stack on this eldritch blast and some of the invocations do things that are just replicating a spell. And we all know that the 5th edition player's handbook is not always the easiest when it comes to navigating where the spells are and and looking at looking things up. So it adds a little bit of a level of unnecessary complexity. But that being said, some of the packs uh, are really cool. Some of the packed boons where you get just the static stuff that you can do because of who you've made a deal with. Those are really neat. Uh, So I'm not ripping the class apart, but it's not my favorite version of the class. Uh, How how did the uh, previous versions, as as a naive, this is my first uh, time I've ever paid serious attention to the Warlock, uh, how how did the past versions deal with the the, uh, sword alternative build, right? Where you have some summonable martial weapon that's completely new? That's completely new. Um, is that why it's so lame in this edition? Fourth edition had a blade lock option in, um, I think, in the arcane handbook. I don't remember. One the of name. the arcane power. Yeah, arcane power had the blade lock option, where it pretty much turned Eldritch Blast into Eldritch Smite, which is not the right name. Was it awesome? But it was Eldritch Blast with a range of melee, so it was still a charisma based attack. It was still D10 damage plus charisma modifier. What 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 made it better? What what made it worth losing the range aside from being awesome? Really, the only difference is was the range because in fourth edition, using a ranged or area attack within reach of an enemy provoked an opportunity attack, whereas melee and close attacks did not. So it avoided the opportunity attack of your range eldritch blast. From a fluff perspective, I think it's one of my favorite classes in the book. I think the fluff is is fascinating. I mean, we have a lot of people who who've made deals with more powerful entities, but most of those are the powerful entities you see every day. They have temples on every block, on every street, right? And everyone knows their name, and their symbols. And they're not secretive, and they're not crazy. Like even the evil ones, they still have temples and like worshippers and like like you know Sunday pancake ceremonies to train you know raise funds for the wounded satanists of something or other right Right. um so i i I really enjoy the the unique deity fluff for that reason 
So what about other mechanical systems and genres? Where does the warlock show up and play a role in other games? Ooh, that's a good question. I can pretty much say in any sort of urban fantasy game, the theme is there. Right. The theme of making a deal with a demon, an old one, something trapped, that concept of what the warlock embodies is there. Uh, that's the plot of many urban fantasy games and novels. Actually, um, since you mentioned that, two um, IPs come to mind. Anyone who's listened to the Sharkbone podcast is know that I'm going to say Stargate. Because the Gwelwold, it's pretty much a Faustian bargain. I mean, they said it right in, in the show. Or alternatively, Dresden Files. The Fae Courts have, you know, the Summer Queen and the Winter Queen have their knights, which are mortals imbued with the power of their queens to do the things that the queens can't do. So those are a type of, of warlock because they have a patron or if you want to go a little bit more dark, you could go with the Denarians. You know, you accept a fallen angel into your into your brain, into your soul, and you know they give you power at a cost. Any insight from you, Scott, about warlocks showing up in other games? I, I, I'm I'm hard pressed to think of anything that specifically is a game system of all warlocks. Um, Warcraft. I got like Monster of the Week, which is reverse. I get it. World of Warcraft joke. No, just no. I'm saying um, Warcraft lore. The, the orcs have a warlock case within their society, but I interrupted you, so I'll shut up now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I got I got very little, aside from uh, just basically substituting the warlock in for wizards in lots of other fantasy settings. I, I, think, uh, I think we're good. Yeah, a lot of systems that use, quote, magic throw around terms like witch and warlock, but if we're comparing them to what they do in terms of D&D, they're basically just wizards or sorcerers. Right. Most times, warlock and witch are used for those who use magic for evil as opposed to good. Which kind of carries over the whole making a deal with something to get what you want. So that theme is kind of there. But like you said, Scott, unlike some of the other classes we've talked about, there's just really not a lot out there where everyone has this core ability or concept i, I will say maybe the, the closest thing that, that my mind can come to is is every psyker in 40k yes <laughs> sure okay I, okay I that totally works totally buy that a couple one trick ponies and then uh horrifying consequences that's that's how that works mm -hmm. it's not my fault that the the demons of the warp decided to show up and within you know three inches of my mini i swear it wasn't me it's the other guy he summoned <laughs> them and is trying to frame me heretic burn him now, in the past couple episodes here, I've always been able to bring up Shadowrun, because I love me some Shadowrun. Uh, I don't think I can bring up Shadowrun for a warlock. I mean, if you really want to get crazy, you could build a story within Shadowrun that you made a deal with some of the magical beings or a dragon. You could even have uh, some of the corpse as a, as a patron. And they gave you tech or magic or something like that. But I feel like everything in Shadowrun is about making deals and getting something out of it. So the last time we talked about it, we said everyone in Shadowrun was a rogue. Do we really want to say that everyone in Shadowrun is also a warlock? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think because my, my knowledge of Shadowrun is limited, but I'm sure I can spin this somehow. I mean, if we look at the concept of the warlock being you made a deal with something powerful to do something that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do, and there are potentially bad consequences, 
then yes, that is exactly Shadowrun, no matter what you do. And yet, Deckers don't remind me of Warlocks, somehow. No. Now, there are Technomancers. Right. You've got Technomancers that control technology through magic. That's a little bit wacky and out there, kind of warlocky. You know, if we look at the William Gibson era of cyberpunk that involved the Loa and the Haitian voodoo mythology and religion, that was very much about striking deals to be a rider, uh, to be a horse for some of the Loa. Right. And I love that series. That that was a reach, but... I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That That is very uh, Warlock-esque. But again, it's not like they got special powers or anything. They, they, they did. They had access to the, to the cybernetic intelligence that was loaded up in their whatever, right? Right. But they essentially, when they jacked into the Matrix, which they used regular tech for, they didn't have some other way to jack in, the Loa was there to guide them. It was basically a spirit of knowledge and advice. They didn't get magical abilities they couldn't cast spells so more of a shaman with the electronic spirit animal a little bit yeah but they died just as easy as anybody else and hell most of the time the loa killed the riders because they just burned out their mind because it was too much power to deal with but again that does kind of evoke a warlock hey i need this knowledge i need the wisdom i'm willing to risk my life to get what i need in this moment Interestingly, if we go back to D&D, there's nothing mechanically about the consequences. The flavor is all about, hey, you made a deal, it might get scary. But at no point did they say, okay, once you hit level 10, you start taking X penalty or this problem arises if you call on the power too much. There's no stat penalties, there's no interaction penalties, it's pretty much a free pass, even if you signed a deal with Cthulhu. Right. And now that you mention um, negative consequences, I am reminded of another game that has a very similar very similar idea. In the latest edition of uh, 7C, one of the types of magic is literally making a deal with the devil. Most things that you use the magic for is pretty basic. But if you want to, say, use his fire powers to literally burn a city to the ground, which is one of the examples in the book, mind you, it rips out your some of your soul because you're doing something horrible and you gain some corruption. Oh, and why don't we go back to your favorite game, Christopher, Shadow of the Demon Lords. A lot of the magic in there... Comes at a price, yep. I don't remember the mechanics exactly. I know you know them, but I, there's some sort of concept for corruption right. or... A stat penalty. Every time you gain corruption, you have to make a, a roll. If you fail the roll, then um, you gain a mark of corruption, which could be something as simple as your eyes glow red or you have uh, cloven hooves instead of feet. Or it could be something more dire, like you have a you know bad body odor, which gives you penal- which gives you banes on in- interaction rolls. Or just once a week, a baby within three miles of you dies. And there's one specific school of magic that I remember looking at where you have to make sacrifices to cast the spells. There are technically two traditions of magic. There's the demonology tradition, which uses blood magic. So you have to deal damage to a creature 
you could have a you know virgin sacrifice and deal the damage to someone else or you can cut yourself up but either way blood must be spilled and then there is the um, forbidden tradition, which just requires some sort of um, sacrifice of a living creature. Could be a human, could be an animal, but you don't refresh your spells unless you perform the sacrifice. So in those cases, they are definitely exploring the consequences related to getting your magic in a possibly illicit way. Right. I mean, imagine if you're trying to control the, you know, you take the demonology tradition and you're trying to use it for good so you're not going to sacrifice anybody well you're cutting yourself up so you're going to have scars all over the place people are going to look at you sideways when you have more scar tissue than you know regular flesh so there you go we might not be able to find the actual warlock in other games easily but we can definitely find the themes of what it means to strike a deal to get some special abilities uh so do we uh do we have anything else we want to say about the warlock here before we wrap it up tonight gentlemen i think it's a great class i think it's approachable i think it's it's probably the easiest caster for new players i think it's it's it can be a lot of fun and it's it's easy to theme however you want to yeah, i mean the, the really open-ended with the fade background so use it play it, enjoy it I think I've oversaid anything I had to say, so I'll just shut up now. And I definitely like the Warlock. I think it's a great class to play with. I liked earlier versions of it better mechanically. Uh, but I think it definitely has the most easily accessible role-playing of a class. Other classes, it, it's you can get into the character. It, it's easy to figure out what you want to do, but... The Warlock just gives you such a great guideline. You chose to make a deal with this being, and that tells you so much about your character. And that's a really great way to shape your role-playing choices. So yeah, definitely play Warlock. I, you'll love it. It's a lot of fun. And if you want to have more fun with it, go back to 3.5, where you could do a whole hell of a lot more. But anyway, uh, with all of that being said, for myself... Christopher, Scott, everyone at the RPG Academy Network, we will see you next time. Don't do drugs, kid. Don't do not do drugs. Kids. Don't drink responsibly. Or just don't drink. You know, it's cool. I, I liked your first yep, advice. Totally don't cool. drink responsibly. <laughs> All right, well... I can't even blame the editing for putting those sound bites together because that is exactly what I said. This is Christopher. I'm now recording number zero one. Shit, that's one one. Fuck. I was trying to be all clever and I failed. Oh, that's going to be a blooper. <laughs> yep. Have a good night, y'all. And remember, always check for min-maxers. And show them love, because they're people, too. Jackass, you just ruined it. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. 
We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at vrpgacademy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.